Welcome to Courageous Conversation with Teresa W. Gamble, powered by Concierge Resource Professional Consultant. Courageous Conversation is a diversity, equality, exclusive initiative. It's a gracious space for a meaningful discussion about cultural, life, business, work, learn, live, worship, and play. It's an audio psychopedia to design bridges, cultures, and generational gaps. Through active listening and action-oriental changes toward liberation for all. Greetings and welcome everyone. This is Teresa Gamble for the Courageous Conversations, your host today. We have a special treat for you. Our guest today is going to talk about something that we only hear about when we get sick have to go in the hospital. For instance, you know if you're getting ready to go have surgery and they have you filling out all these forms and one of them, one lady will come in, you don't know who she is, but she come in and she say, because you all are sedated and got anesthesia, do you have an advanced directive? And you looking at yourself and you looking at your family members like you don't know what that is. But guess what? Courageous Conversation has a treat for you. We have an ongoing series that we're going to talk about advanced directives with the actual social worker. And our theme and our topic to launch it is called Dictate the Terms Before You Can, the Importance of Advanced Directives for Healthcare Decisions. We have Elaine McGraw Brannon. She is a mental health social worker, licensed. Wait, let me back up. This sister is licensed social worker. She's the director of Revivals. You better go. Revivals Health and Wellness Council. I love it. Thank you for joining us, Elaine. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to talk to your guests and you about this topic. It is so important today and I'm just gassed to be here. <laughs> awesome. Welcome. So let me let me get the title right so everybody knows. Dictate the terms before you can. The importance of advanced directives for healthcare decisions with Elaine McFarl Brandon, the director of Revivals Health and Wellness Council. So Elaine, tell us about yourself and what motivated you to become a social worker. Well, my parents grew up at the height of the civil rights movement. Um, and when I say grew up, it's because they've been together since they were 15, got married at 18, and then started having children, and moved to the city of Chicago from the South, so my father wouldn't be swinging from a tree, and he immediately started getting active with Operation Breadbasket, which is now the Rainbow Push Coalition in the city of Chicago. And so I've always been around community service, going down in Chicago with him, um, helping people that um, had certain issues in housing, voting, and equity on their jobs. And, and my parents were just involved in the community. My father was a Cub Master for the Cub Scouts in our community. My mother was a gym mother. My father was a Little League coach. So I've always had that sense of community in me. Then when I realized that I could work in a community, help people, which was my natural um, 
thing to do, my natural character, and get paid for it, I thought this will probably be a good career for me. So when I went to undergraduate school, I looked into their social work program and immediately had a love connection with the one of the directors in the department. And he became my mentor and just spoke a lot of life into me concerning what he foresaw me doing as a social worker. And a lot of those things came to pass. Then when I went on to San Diego State University and got a master's degree, I encountered a similar mentor who did the same thing, spoke some of the same things without me even sharing with him what was spoken to me in my undergraduate class classes. So I knew I was on the right track. I've had a lot of good mentors, good internships, good supervisors, and just good opportunities in this field to just help people and empower people to just live healthy and good lives. So that's kind of what brought me into social work. Um, I've been in the game for 35 years now, a little over 35 years. Wow. And I've worked in a lot of fields of, of practice. You know, there's a lot of social work field practices that a lot of people are not aware of because most time when people think of social workers and the baby snatchers and <laughs> That's not all that we do. Wow. You know, we empower people in various areas. We work in geriatrics. We work um, with occupate, helping people get their occupations together. Um, lots of fields. And in addition to child welfare, which I do have experience in that as a foster care social worker, I've investigated uh, child protective issues. I've worked in adoptions. Um, I've worked with the aging population, the intellectually disabled population. And now I'm currently a hospital master social worker in a rural critical access hospital. So um, I've kind of gone full circle. And with all of that experience um, as a social work direct practitioner, a general practitioner, and also a social work administrator, I knew one day that I wanted to run and direct my own organization. So I didn't know at the time that I was going to have a breast cancer experience mm. and embark on a journey like none other. So that is where I was led to form my own organization, Revivals Health and Wellness Council. And so I do manage that um, nonprofit charity. And I just, I love social work. So all of the things that I've learned for the last 35 plus years in social work, now I'm cutting it with every client that I get. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. Great testimony, great experience in history. Um, so with that being said, during the COVID-19 pandemic, there is a lot of focus on essential workers in healthcare. We often think, doctors and nurses when we hear essential workers. You are a hospital master social worker. What do social workers do in a hospital? Because we don't hear about y'all on the news. <laughs> <laughs> well, we essentially, as essential workers, we assist the doctors with discharge plans for patients in the hospital. And not just patients that have been admitted to the hospital. 
these are patients that come through the emergency department, that come through the clinics, um, that come to the specialty clinics, that come through the operating room. Anybody that comes to the hospital for services can get connected with a social worker. And what we primarily do is address whatever social needs you're having that is impacting your medical needs mm -hmm. so that you can reduce your recurrence of admission to the hospital mm -hmm. or so that whatever hospital experience you have can be enhanced and you can find that comfort in knowing that you'll be cared for and also that you'll be getting information that is going to empower you to when you leave the hospital, you're able to sustain. Because when you're in the hospital, you have nurses waiting on you hand and foot. Right. You have doctors telling you information. You even have the catering service, food service, bringing your meals. You have someone cleaning up your room. But yeah. when you get home, <laughs> it is back to the same old, same old, whatever you were dealing with. And right. so, Social workers are going to help you make sure that that same tender loving care that you came to know about in the hospital, that you can try to duplicate that at home if you weren't, if you didn't have it. And then also, if you did have it, how did you enhance it and maintain it? So we look at the person in their environment naturally as social workers. And so we take that discipline and put that with the medical professionals and just join that team. And in most states in this country, um, to, in order for a hospital to function and meet those state regs, regulations, they have to have a social worker on board. Wow, that's good to know. That's real good to know. Didn't know that. I knew y'all played a role because I worked in the hospital uh, um, as a registration clerk in on the out outpatient side i floated a little bit on the inpatient side which is two different worlds and um you all do have a huge responsibility and for that i tell you thank you for doing that and in addition to the patients there also is the staff think of all the trauma that nurses and doctors and even administrators face when they are making decisions about people's lives and the stress that they're under. Right. The stress that they're under when things go right and the stress they're under when things don't go so right. And so as a social worker, I sit on a team that deals with helping people bounce back from traumatic um, incidents and events. And so I lead those teams. I lead those peer-to-peer -peer, um, debriefings mm -hmm. and also um, make sure that people can kind of get that level back to where they can return to work. Because when a nurse has experienced something traumatic in that emergency department and needs to take a break for 30 minutes or so, right? Um, the goal is for her not to take that break, for him to take that break and then go home and crawl up on the couch in the fetal position and can't function. Right. Because we need them to take care of the patients that are coming through the door. Right. So to try to get them back 
to a functional state so they can jump back in the game um, can be trying. So as a social worker, I'm on that team um, to make sure that I'm, t I'm helping the staff take care of, um, you know, getting back from, the, from those traumas. And then each patient comes with a family, right? Whether it's a traditional family or a non-traditional family, it could be a neighbor who's acting as a family member, um, or it can actually be a blood relative. And so making sure that they understand the discharge plan, what's going on in the hospital, what are the resources out there when they leave, what are the options they have? So all of that, um, social workers kind of, they glued and kind of tries to hold all of that stuff together and working with those other disciplines in the hospital working with those community organizations, representing the hospital so that the hospital's voice is made known. I sit on several committees in our community, multidisciplinary teams where um, I there am representing the hospital and you may have law enforcement, child protective services, agency, uh, aging services, animal control. All of these entities are sitting on one board or one committee or one task force, because I'm on a lot of them, so that we can create policies and procedures to ensure that when people come through that door or either to work or as a patient, that they're cared for. And so um, I can represent the hospital by letting them know who we serve and how we serve them and how state laws and policies and procedures and ordinance are all impacting people that come through that door. Wow. So we work closely with leg legislators um, and my chief nursing officer and my chief executive officer of the hospital are constantly having me read over different materials that come down from politicians and um, you know other entities so that I can make sure that they're in line with the hospital values that they're going to be good for the people in our community. That is amazing. That is commendable work. Um, thank every social worker for making sure that our doctors and our nurses' mental health is okay. Because if their mental health is okay, they can't take care of us. So thank you for that. So yeah. I want to ask you, how does a person get access? Wait, you mentioned how, do, how you support people who are facing health challenges but are also struggling to direct their own care. What advice would you give to people so that these challenges are more manageable? Well, because my personal life philosophy <laughs> um, deals with six points of entry of self-care. Okay. So we all talk about, you know, eating right, exercise, getting rest, reducing your stress, you know, reducing your toxic load. But the last two are the ones that are most important to me. That is informed self-care okay, and also proactive medical care. That's good. Because there may come a time when you can no longer communicate your choices. Right. Or your treatment. Right. So with that, I encourage people to make those choices known in advance. And then appoint someone to make sure that those choices are respected. Okay. 
when appointing someone, does it have to be one person or can it be more than one person? It can be more than one person. There is a chief person that you okay. are going to appoint. Okay. And then there's typically one or two alternates, just in case that first person, for some reason, can't speak for you or can't ensure that your wishes are being carried out. Okay. And that's the whole point of an advanced directive. That's the whole point of, you might hear the term power of attorney and people, you know, a lot of times people don't understand what that means. Right. Um, they resist it because they think I don't want anybody having power over me. I've been independent all my life and um, I like making my own decisions and I don't want to give anyone power of attorney over me. So I get that question a lot. And then I like just kind of break it down in simple terms as to what it is you're giving somebody and what it is they're giving you. And then what are they giving us as healthcare professionals? Right. That's good. That's good. So how does a person get access to an advanced directive document? Do they have to have to, do they have to hire an attorney? No, they don't. Now, federal law requires that hospitals, skilled nursing facilities, clinics, all of them have those documents available for you. Now, an attorney may be helpful to some people, but it's not necessary because you can go to those entities and they will have a document for you. Um, so in that document, the first thing you're going to do is select that person, that power of attorney. Now, a power of attorney is just simply a person where it's somebody that you define as they're going to handle either my business, they're going to handle my medical decisions, they're going to handle any other decision requiring um, some activity on my part that's going to be in my best interest. So in terms of health care, that's an advanced directive. And so a hospital will have the, that document. Your primary care physician will have that document. Um, any clinic should have that document. And then there are some places online too that'll have those documents and I can give you those, that um, information um, before we wrap up of where people can actually go and get those. Okay, sounds good. I, I love that because we have to make those proactive medical care decisions. So basically if you, it's almost like you're preparing not so much a will when you're gone, but it's also a living will of what happens if you're incapacitated and can't make the decisions or if something arises during your medical care, you cannot make the decision whether to proceed or not to proceed, right. correct? Right. So a person in this document is going to be dictating how they want to be treated in the event that they can't share verbally with the doctor how they want to be treated. And you do this in advance while you're alert and oriented and can think straight and you may not be experiencing any health issues, but you just want to, you, you already know how you want to be treated. You know whether or not your condition is terminal, uh, what, how, what you want to happen. You already know that if there's some prolonged treatments that may be offered to you, 
how long you may want to be on those. Mm-hmm. You might know, hmm, if I stop breathing, do I want the doctors to resuscitate me, get me back? You know, um, if I'm not able to eat or stay hydrated, I want them to do that artificially. Give me a feeding tube. Give me something. Get nutrition in me some kind of way until I can do it on my own. And if you don't already know how you want to be treated, there is no time like the present to start thinking about that. Because any of us can be in a situation where we can't tell someone how we want to be treated. A lot of times people equate advanced directives or living wills or anything like that with older people. People that, you know, may have a whole bunch of money and, oh, I got to know who I'm going to leave my stuff to and, and, and I need them to, I don't want them keeping me on a machine. It could be a child going off to college wow. and can fall down the stairs, going to class mm-hmm. and gets rushed to the hospital and their parent isn't there and they've not told anybody how they want to be treated medically. Wow. That's something so, to think about. In advance, and especially at this time of year when children are going off to school. Right, right. And a, you, a parent may get a call from a physician saying your child is in the hospital, they're in a coma, and this, that, and the other. And a parent may struggle and say, hmm, I know what I would do in this situation. But my son is grown now. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this is what he would want. I mean, we've had some conversations about what's going on in the world and political things. And I kind of know how he feels about, you know, certain, you know, issues concerning health care. But I never asked him, if you are not breathing, do you want that to do CPR? Maybe have to crack your chest open to get your heart pumping again so that we can see what kind of life you're going to live. Or do you just want them to not do nothing and let you go? Wow. And so those are, yeah. And so even if a person is not thinking right now of how they want to be treated, if they can't tell someone, now's the time to be thinking about it. Because in that document, you can lay out exactly how you want to be treated. Do you want to be resuscitated? And this is what resuscitated means? Yes or no? And sometimes people get a little wigged out because they think, wow, that's kind of a deep decision to make. And what if I feel like that today? And I don't feel like that tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I just don't know what to do. And and I and I want to be able to tell my loved one what to do. There's a clause in an advanced directive that allows that healthcare agent or power of attorney, those terms are simultaneously, um, that allows them to make the best decision for you. So you're laying out all these things, yes or no, yes or no, I want this, I want that, I don't want this, I don't want that, but if at the time this happens, my agent, meaning the person that I appointed, 
learns that there's some new technology that came out mm-hmm. this year when I did my advanced directive three years ago. Right. And now it's something new out. Mm-hmm. Even though I put down there that I didn't want to be resuscitated, that doctor has explained this new procedure. And this agent says, mm, I think that would be in their best interest. I believe based on what they wrote, that if they knew this, they would want to try that. Then you can mark that you want to give them a little bit of discretion. Wow. That's to interesting. To make that decision. To make That's that decision for you. Wow. Now, I didn't know about that part. I knew I was going to learn something new today. <laughs> I did not know about that part, but that's good to know. And it's ironic you say that because every time I have had surgery in the past, I will always write a letter to my husband with instructions, not knowing what I was doing. If I didn't make it from surgery, I wrote one to him and I wrote one to both of my sons for what was on my mind before I went into surgery and what my desires was for them. And what promises they need to make to for me to make sure they are they'll be okay, even though I won't be with them. So I was doing it and not realizing it. And I would give it to my husband, and I would um actually write it the day before I go into the hospital. And but I wouldn't give it to him until they get ready to roll me in or whatever procedure I was doing. And he would look at me and he'll say, "Well, what is this?" I say, "This is just in case." That's what I called it. It's the just in case. So mm. it's amazing. I was doing it and not realize I was doing it. So not yeah, not realizing it. So each state has their own advanced directive document. Now that I didn't know. Um, so there's not a universal document for advanced directive because of the different state laws and rules and regs. That is exactly right. Okay. Um, each state has their own document that they've devised based on the laws in that state. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that if a person relocates, they can still let their new primary care physician know, Mm -hmm. hey, I have an advanced directive and this is what it says. Right. And and a doctor will be bound by that. But what I think is so important for that advanced directive to be converted over. Got it. And that is where you can go to your hospital social worker at your new, you've just relocated and you go right into that hospital where your primary care physician is and say, I want to speak to the social worker. Here's my document from the state of California. And I need to redo my advanced directive now that I'm in the state of Nevada. Right. And I need that form. And a lot of, I've had a lot of people put them side by side and they see where there's not much difference, but because the laws in California may be concerning death and dying or treatments or what treatments are offered to people may be different mm-hmm. than in the state of Nevada, there may be a slight change. So you do want to get those changed over as much as you can. Also, each state has what they call a lockbox. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes people, well, they'll get the advanced directives and do, they, do I put them in my safe? Do I put them in my safety deposit box? What if 
my family members try to act like they don't know that I have it or I forgot to take it to the hospital. You can register that in what they call a lockbox. And that's um, held by your secretary of state. Wow. So that if anything happens where you cannot get access to it, the lockbox program is available. So if someone does an advanced directive, goes to another state, whether they're visiting or they have moved, sometimes it may be hard for you to get a hold of the medical records department at your hospital. They may say, we have a 48-hour turnaround before we can get medical records from where you are to here. So having your advanced directive registered in your state lockbox through your secretary of state kind of remedies that. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Well, audience, you have been listening to Elaine McGraw-Brannon, the director of Amber, director of Revival Health and Wellness Council. We're talking about dictate the terms before you can't. The importance of advanced directives for healthcare decisions. This is a series of many. You've been listening to Courageous Conversation with Teresa W. Gamble. Courageous Conversation is powered by Concierge Resource Professional Consultant. If you'd like to be a guest and have your story, lesson, and best practice to be captured in an audio psychopedia. We are currently reviewing applications for future guests to join us, and we're especially interested in creating spaces for long-standing or multi-generational Black-owned businesses. For more information and to be considered, please email info at crpcnow.com to request an application. Be not weary in well-doing. You shall reap if you faint not. Galatians 6 and 9.